Well, good morning and welcome, especially to those uh, guests and family members who are coming uh, today uh, as they celebrate, as we celebrate baptism. Uh, as, a, as a note on the baptisms, uh, if you have um, children over uh, in the children's area, uh, immediately when the service is over, so you get the, your kids as soon as possible and then have whatever conversations you were going to have later during the picnic. And if you're not staying at the picnic, well, that was irresponsible planning on your part. And so please get your children as quickly as possible so that the, the workers can come and participate in, in witnessing the baptism. And then uh, after the baptisms, of course, we will be having um, the potluck. Uh, we are celebrating something that is not a, a particular, uh, what you would call, feast in the history of Christianity, namely something like Easter, something that's a, a immovable feast that has been celebrated since the, the beginning of Christianity, being able to mark the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and commemorate that. Uh, oftentimes we think of Christmas in the same manner, but Christmas was actually not an immovable feast in the history of Christianity. It was movable, meaning that since no one knew the exact time of the birth of Christ, different churches and different parts of Christianity would celebrate it in different times of the season, actually. Historically, being celebrated in, like, December 25th is, is recent in terms of a 2,000-year religion. And then you had other feasts or celebrations, and so we, we actually are, are coming up on one that, that the Protestant church recognizes as Reformation Day, but actually, hold on, settle down, I'm, I'm, I'm it's, one of the, it's one of the few Sundays where I have to, to, to talk about history, and so uh, if you don't like history, you, you are here on the wrong Sunday, by the way, and so but the reality is, is that that was actually a, a, an existing celebration already called All Saints Day, meaning that on November 1st, far back, in, probably starting in the 6th century, but then really moving forward, was there was always a time set apart where there was a celebration or recognition of martyrs of the church who had died for their faith. Now, this precedes a time where... where kind of illicit doctrinal creep would come in where martyrs would start being seen as some type of, of mediators uh, to the faithful, which would, would become an aberration and still is today. This was simply a recognition that people had given their lives for the faith, that there had been multitudes from the second century and onward uh, for the first couple centuries of the church who, who had died simply because they refused to recant that Jesus was Savior in their tens of thousands. And so the church would recognize in a time of peace, really from the 4th century onward, for the Christian church, these people died for their faith. So we would commemorate them. And this became known as All Saints Day on November 1st. All Hallows Eve, or what is kind of what you would call um, culturally, Halloween w- was a time of actual preparation for that celebration, meaning you would fast and do all these things. And then Irish Christians became a part of the church and brought all the fairies and weird things that we do with Halloween now. That's, I'm not insulting Irish people. That's historically accurate. And so 
And then now we have this kind of time where we have Halloween coming up, and it's mostly thought of this kind of innocuous time where you can dress up and have fun and get candy. But the reality is this was something that was in the church for quite some time, this consideration of people have died for their faith. And all they had to do was say, I don't believe, and they would live. And that's really what marks the calendar, the church calendar, in the next coming days. And as we have an official observation observation of Reformation Day, well, it was on a All Hallows' Eve where a, a German monk asked there to be a debate over particular abhorrent issues, doctrinal issues that were being taught. Namely, that you could give enough money to the church in order to take time off the prison sentence that your ancestors had in a make-believe place called purgatory. And then it was a money-making scheme by Rome. And then so this monk was offended that the poor and the widows of his small town were being asked to give all that they have so that another cathedral could be built. And so in the Reformation was a, and it preceded Luther with with forerunners like Huss and Wycliffe and even those before them, and, and it was going on at the same time in Switzerland where people were beginning to read the scriptures again from the Greek and the Hebrew, and they were being translated into their languages, and they were seeing the scriptures and seeing, like, what are we doing? And so all of this, this comes back to this idea of the Reformation, if you really want to get down to it, to where it's a, it's a point in the history of the church where there was a desire for restoration of what the church was supposed to be according to the scriptures. It was supposed to be a people set apart, recognizing the great gifts they've been given by the one true God. And that their profession of faith came because they had been redeemed and renewed and restored no longer slaves to sin, but restored. And so the Reformation was about returning to the faith, returning to the essentials of the faith. One of the common accusations against the Reformers by their opponents in Rome was, you've left the Catholic Church. And the universal response was, no, you did. We're simply pointing the Catholic Church back to its roots, the Scriptures. So, Reformation Day, while a, not a recognizable feast in the Christian Church, we have, for the long-storied history of this church, celebrated it every year. And so, I call all of us today to consider the scriptures that we'll read and share together today, in the spirit of the Reformation, of the desire to fully comprehend the level that you've been restored back to God, and what that means in your life today for the purpose you have in the church. If you are here today and you're not 
a Christian. Just know that God's holy word calls you to repentance, to be restored, a sinner and rebel of God, to become an adopted son and daughter. I will be reading from the entirety of the verses we'll be covering this morning. After I finish reading, I'll ask that you take time silently to pray. Pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate your mind to the truth of the Word. Take this time to repent of of sins that you believe hidden. After a time of silent prayer, I'll pray corporately for us, and we'll enter into the time the ministry of the Word. So now reading from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 18. <clears throat> Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the faithful gather here on this, the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who was humiliated, bled out, was beaten in in obedience and complete obedience and, and, and keeping the law. went and and paid the price, the penalty that was not his, but rather was his people's, that is ours, and all of the faithful 
who will call on the name of Christ until he returns. God, so we come to celebrate his work, acknowledging that we now live in the time where we wait for his return. And yet we are called not to wait as those who are without hope. But we have such hope. Lord, remind us today of your great works. In the midst of our anxiety, fear, and yes, hopelessness of when life seems to be pressing us down. Let us be reminded of the glory that awaits us. That Christ our Savior will return. Claim us as his own. We will be resurrected in perfection. To worship him forevermore. But until such a time now, we wage war with ourselves, with our own sin nature, while redeemed in the Spirit, Lord, continue to strengthen us and shape us through the power of the Spirit and the Word, to be more and more made into the image of Christ. Let us exercise our gifts in the Spirit here in our local assembly or wherever our local assembly may be. Lifting one another up, edifying the church, sharing the gospel, discipling those new in the faith. Lord, as we wait on your return. Lord, will you bless us now in this continued time of public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jumping in the middle of a chapter in the beginning of a book that we're not currently in was simply me kind of perusing historically the verses that were universally preached or taught during the time of the Reformation. And this particular group of text comes from a series of sermons by both Calvin and a man named Johannes Ocalampadius. Probably not only do I love saying his name, but also a reformer most people don't recognize. This is also mentioned in the book of Concord with the, the, from the, the Lutheran tradition. And the reason that this, this set of verses is so incredible is that the church that this letter was written to is a church that should look oh so recognizable to us. The church in Corinth, the two letters that we have of Paul's, are notorious for a church that has lost its way either through toleration of aberrant sinful behavior by its members or being seduced by false teachers of all manner. It's a, it's a, a, a perfect screenshot of most churches today. A mixture of being led astray or wanton sinfulness being ignored. And Paul's continued emphasis through this second letter will be while pointing out 
the history of some issues is to constantly make them remember who they are. And if there's something that is a repeated theme in the Old Testament, it's Israel's constant needing to be reminded who they are and what God has done. He's rescued you from the hand of Egypt. He's done all these things. He's done all these things. Remember how he's done all these things. And the prophets and the patriarchs and all those throughout history will pray and remember all these things you've done for us, God. Will you do those again? And of course, he always does. And here in this group of texts, Paul is reminding this church in Corinth and all the faithful from the time forward, remember who you are. Remember what you've been called to. And so here in 12, really coming off of, if you want to know the kind of the the grammatical nature of how this is written, 6, 3, 6, where it says, made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, but the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's kind of a, a continuation of that thought. So in 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold. Just stop. Soak it in. If you are in Christ, what is the epitome of what is supposed to define your life? Since we have, say it out loud, such hope. I've never done that before, and I kind of didn't like it. So it's one of those moments where I just off the cuff, but I want to do it one more time. I think it was because not everyone was saying it. Since we have such hope. Like this is, a, this is a defining moment for the Christian church. How are you defined in the midst of persecution? In the midst of being called to renounce your savor lest you be put to death. How is it that so many willingly did that in the early church? Why? Because they believed this. They believed that theirs was a life defined by hope. In the midst of persecution... They were defined by hope. I was telling a story at a dinner last night, and I think as well to Bo this week. Had a random phone call from someone on Monday to come have lunch with them. Never met them before. I'd bought a book from their bookstore, and then it was a partner of theirs at a seminary and said, hey, I'm in your area. Can we have lunch together, breakfast? And I'm going to bring a few friends and I was like, sure. And then after I did it, I was like, I never do that. And even Christina was like, what are you doing? You wouldn't. <laughs> Usually you would be like, Shh, oh, sorry. <laughs> so I went to this breakfast. And in this breakfast, I met a pastor from Uganda. And he's currently with this group of people planting and building churches through southern Sudan and northern Uganda. And one of the things they were sharing is Uganda is roughly the size of Texas, and there's one road. One. And so he rides a bike to all these churches. And they have basically this program of where they build a community building where you would have worship and all the types of things that the community take a part of, a school and a clinic and a water tower. Now, it's in the midst of refugees coming from Sudan because of war there. And, and the war is kind of predominantly being pushed by Islamists who are in that region. 
And so they have Muslims from the north coming down to the areas, and then they have traditional animistic kind of religion from the people in the central and southern region of Uganda, and they're just coming to faith in droves. And as he was talking about riding his bike everywhere, one of the things I shared with the family last night, as well as my own family, as well as Bo, is like, I don't think I've ever met a more joyful man in my life. It was really frustrating. <laughs> because it made me feel really terrible. Like, look, look at how he was just, it was infectious. This was someone who, in the midst of kind of, at all times, perhaps facing death, he had such hope. It was evident that what he saw happening in his life and around them was the work of God. And all of the other circumstances around them, like, he's like, just so much hope in who I am. And in this, in this word itself has the idea of, of looking to the future. Where's our hope come from? It's not in the here and now. It's in the future. Because of what's happened in the past, because of our redemption in Christ, the future that we look forward to is where we find hope based on the work of God, which has always come through. And because God's work has always come through in his promise of salvation back in Genesis to break the curse of the serpent and then sending his son, Jesus Christ, promise fulfilled, a mul the multitude of promises fulfilled before then, and then the promise that he will one day return and gather us to himself. Because promises kept in the past, we know God is faithful, even when we are not. And so the hope remains set in the future when Christ comes. So our hope is forward. And because we have this hope, we are very bold. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. This word in the Greek, and I, for some of you in here, I almost didn't want to say this today. It could be translated loose lips. Or someone who talks a lot. Some people are like, that's hope. But the idea really centers around a person who is unhindered, meaning because of the hope, we are very bold, and it has to do with speech. Because of the hope, we have this ability to tell the truth about Christ unhindered. In the loose lips aspect, meaning is like we, we're not going to stop speaking about the truth of God. So because we have this great hope, in Christ, and we believe it fully, we are unhindered in our ability to talk about him in any situation. So don't take this, we are have hope and are very bold as, I'm just talking. This has to do with the centrality of who Christ is. Our hope is in Christ, and we have that hope, and it, and it manifests its way in our life in the way we are unhindered. And Paul's giving them an example of this and how he's talking. We are very bold, not like Moses. 
And he goes into this long example who would put a veil over his face so the Israels might not gaze at the outcome of what has been brought to an end. What that has to do is when, when, when Moses was the interceding for the people and he was near God's glory when he came down, the, the, it says face shone. And in the Hebrew, the idea is literally brightness or shining. And in the Greek here, what he's talking about is he continues to talk about it, and he ends these passages in 18. Glory, it's the same kind of word, meaning it is also talking about shining. And so Moses was coming down, and his face was visibly shining. And the people wanted him to cover it so that they would not see that reflection of what had happened by him being in God's presence for fear that they might die or some other thing. And the way Paul writes it about what's coming to an end, the reality, as it's explained in Exodus, is that being in God's presence and the residual glory that was reflected off of Moses' face that he was covering was fading. Meaning the Israelites were fearful of not just God's glory, but the fading reality of it. And as that shine would gradually stop, on Moses' face, and he would unveil, and the people fell safe again. Paul's using it as an example of a lack of boldness. And of course, he's going to turn that aspect of the veiled truth of God's glory. And so he goes to verse 14. As God's fading glory on the face of Moses is covered, it's veiled. God's glory is veiled. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, going into 15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So there in 14 and 15, you have a couple of things. You have the veil being related to, which would have normally been used for mourning or some other thing like that. It's, it's hiding God's glory. And God and Paul attributes that to their, their minds being hardened. As well as their hearts. He's letting, he's letting this audience know Something that you have that the Israelites did not have. The ones who were witnesses to the splitting of the sea, to the plagues, who saw the pillar of smoke and fire and and were watching their things that were happening on the mount as, as God's own finger is writing the law and seeing Moses come down with his face shining. Yet he hid it from them. And it was their minds were hardened. He said, when they read the Old Covenant, the veil remains unlifted. Because only in Christ is it taken away. So now, he speaks to a people who didn't, he talks about the Israelites as they didn't understand what they were in the presence of, which you would acknowledge because they built a golden cow. And so the reality is, is that they were hardened. 
And this time of history will last all the way up into the time of where Paul is recounting there's a reason that there's such opposition to this new covenant that Christ is the long-awaited Messiah and the reality that the vast majority of the people who should have acknowledged it and understood it and seen it have denied it is because there is a veil over their hearts because they've been hardened in their minds. And this, I'm not taking this central, the centrality of that to what we're talking about today other than to say Paul finishes this argument in Romans 10 and 11, 9 through 11 primarily, talking about a future time when many of those ethnic Israel will come to faith in Christ. But now they are hardened. They cannot see. They cannot hear. And the veil remains. The veil remains hiding God's glory. And so the veil remains as an excellent illustration of everyone who is in unbelief. There remains a veil over their hearts. They can't lift it. You can't convince them to believe, no matter how polished your apologetics argument might be. You can't talk people into faith in Christ. You can't legislate morality, even in your own household, to ensure that someone will come to Christ. It is only through the providential hand of God and the moving of the Spirit, regenerating a person's heart to give them faith in Christ so that they turn and repent and believe and the veil is torn away. No darkness no more hardness of of mind or stubbornness, as it were. Minds were hardened. A veil was over their heart because only through Christ is it taken away. And in 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. This is the point in the the teaching where one should pause. Everything he's writing about is a person's inability to believe and shows them the only way to understand this is Christ. And so then the question has to be asked for the church. If the predominant message here is, As one who is in Christ, you have such hope and therefore are bold. If you can look at your life and go, it's not a very hopeful life. If you can recognize day by day, it's not a very bold life. The question has to be asked, have you forgotten? Have you stopped reminding yourself of who Christ is? 
Have you stopped reminding yourself, or if you are in Christ, that once a sinner by nature and by choice, someone who with great joy would break the law of God, no conflict, no feeling of remorse, maybe if he got caught doing something, And yet you were supernaturally taken out of that life of death and slavery into new life in Christ. An adopted son or daughter whose inheritance is now his. Who now wears the robe of righteousness that Christ has placed on them. And positionally been giving a different nature. One that can now fight against sin. Being restored. Made more and more of the image of Christ-likeness rather than the world. Rather than having the world shape you how they desire. Which is always antithesis to what Christ has in store for you. If you find yourself wallowing in defeat and sin, you've stopped reminding yourself. You've stopped remembering who God is and what He's done for you. Why the Protestant Reformation transformed the Western world is because people came to understand and remember and turn to the Word. God's self-disclosure of Himself to His people, His Holy Word. More often than not, if you've stopped remembering, if you see seeing a progression of restoration in your life more and more to the image of Christ I can almost universally show you that you probably are not reading this and you are probably not praying and you've probably excluded yourself from a local assembly and yet everything we have Everything we need, believe it or not, and the way it's designed in the New Testament, look around you, is right here in this meeting space. A local assembly gathered together, bearing one another's burdens. That means sharing your burdens with one another, so that you might pray for one another, so that you might live for each other. Why? for the purpose of helping present one another to the Son when He returns for His bride, made holy and pure. The rigor of the Christian life is not holiness because of work. It's holiness already imbued into the church. And the work is done because our affections and all that is in us is being transformed 
more and more into the image of Christ that not fully restored because of sin will one day be fully restored when he returns. So that which was lost in Eden is fulfilled forevermore. But until such a time, we are all broken. The reformers recognized that. Not this part of society, not this news channel. No, you are broken. And if you're in Christ, those cracks are being sealed up. You're being reshaped. You're broken down and being reshaped into something better, something greater, something more Christ-like. But you're called to do it together. If you've been coming to this church for a while and you have nobody who you share your life with, you're doing it wrong. You can't get through life without being part of the community, being part of a local assembly. If you're visiting today and you're just visiting because you have a relative being baptized or a friend, and you're not a part of a local assembly, and you just kind of go to church every once in a while, impossible for you to mature in Christ. There's no such thing as some you can't just read, you can't just watch it on TV now. Ugh, what COVID did to us. If you're not gathered physically, you're not assembling with the church. If you're not getting to know people there and you're not in their lives and really getting to know them, you're not doing it right. And if you're going to a gigantic church because it's easy to be anonymous, go to a small church. Don't be anonymous. God calls us into each other's lives for the fraction of time that we're here to bring glory to his name through the exercising of the gifts that he's given us. All power, all holiness, all blessing, it's all his work. We're his instruments together. And if we really want to look at reforming the church, restoring the church, which didn't begin with the reformers. It happened all throughout church history. There are large and small moments of voices rising up to restore the church back to the word, back to the spirit, all the things that were passed down from the apostles. You have to start in the mirror. Be a person dedicated to the word and prayer. Here's the great news. If you're floundering in your own weakness, which we all are, look as Paul concludes this section. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, this part, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as he began the veil analogy and the glory or the shining analogy, 
he now lets the church know, because Christ is in you by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his work on the cross, we are all beholding that glory that the people feared. It's right before you at all times. The Spirit lives in you. There's no veil, and the shining forth is coming from you, from God through you. That's why it says, beholding the glory or the brightness or the shine of the Lord are being transformed from one image, from one degree of that same word, glory, to another. He's letting them know, remember all the things God's done. Remember who you are. And be reminded now that what's happening in you by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the word, you are being changed moment by moment, degree by degree, more into this restored image in Christ. And that is good news. Not by strength of arm, not by will of man, but by the power of Almighty God, you are being molded and shaped into the image of the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of public worship where we may come and celebrate your great works. God, I pray we give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord. We give thanks to the abundance of his mercy and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells the church as a seal and a sign of our, our shared union with Christ. And now as we continue this time of worship, may your name be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.